The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer. It's an opportunity for you to make sure that you're in fellowship, ready to concentrate and focus on the study of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word, that it is a sufficient guide to truth for us, that it is in your word that you have revealed yourself, that it is in your word you have revealed the, that who and what man is, that we are created in your image and your likeness for the purpose of representing you to creation, yet man's basic problem is that he has fallen, that he has sinned, disobeyed you, and yet you have provided in grace a perfect, complete solution that was taken care of when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and that we can have eternal salvation by simply believing, trusting, relying upon him. Father, we look forward to his return. The word of God promises that. And Father, as we continue our study, as we seek to understand what you have revealed about the future, help us to understand that it is not simply a matter of academic curiosity, but it impacts how we Think how we live today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we are in our, I think this is our fifth or sixth and last uh, Sunday morning where we will be studying on the doctrine of the rapture. We have been studying why we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. Coming out of our study in Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 where we have the promise from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Philadelphia, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who are on the earth. The hour of trial is that period of time in, in the future known as the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Daniel's 70th week, the time of the tribulation. There are several other titles for it. This is a time of worldwide judgment immediately preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ. As we will see in our study this morning, it does not fit God's purpose for the church, for the church, the bride of Christ, to go through this time of testing. So we have a promise here that we are kept from that time of testing. And the way that we are kept from that time of testing is through a doctrine known as the pre-tribulation rapture. So we have addressed two questions. The first is, what is the rapture? And the second, when is the rapture? Regarding the definition, what is the rapture? I have used the following definition. The resurrection of all dead church-age believers and the translation of all living believers from the, age, from the earth at the end of the church age before the tribulation begins. The resurrection of all dead church age believers and the translation of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age before the tribulation begins. This is based on 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 where we're told that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ 
will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. As you see in the translation, it is that word for caught up, which is where we get our English word rapture. Technically, uh, rapture refers to just the translation of the uh, living saints. I had an exchange of uh, emails the last few days with uh, my good friend, Dr. Tommy Ice, who is Mr. Pre-Trib Rapture and Executive Director of the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group. And Tommy said that in light of recent debates and in light of uh, current where the current debate is going, the rapture technically refers just to this section. However, for most of us, since the Lord descends in the clouds, there is one trumpet, one shout, and both the dead in Christ and those who are alive and remain all go up at one time. For our general discussion, we're not going to uh, cut the slice the bologna so thin, as one of my seminary professors used to say, as to distinguish in that uh, bl- twinkling of an eye between the rising of the dead in Christ and the uh, catching up of the living church age believers. In fact, I consulted both uh, Gerald Stanton's book, Kept from This Hour, which is a classic and almost definitive study of the rapture, and Dr. John Walvoord's book on on the rapture, both of which were written well before the current uh, development of the debate, and both of them talk about the rapture as the translation of the church, which would include both living and dead church-age believers to meet the Lord in the air. But we always need to be aware of where some of the current controversies are going with, just so we're not uh, completely uh, ignorant. As we've seen in the previous weeks, the purpose of this doctrine is not just to satisfy curiosity as to what's going to happen in the future, but ultimately to comfort us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, that as we know where we are headed and what God is going to do, it motivates us, it stimulates us, it challenges us with how we live today, that we constantly need to think in terms of where we are going, making decisions today in light of eternity. Well, the second question we've addressed is, when is the rapture? What is the rapture? Now, when is the rapture? And we have seen that we hold to a view called the pre-tribulation rapture. Pre meaning before. We believe Jesus Christ will return in the clouds for all church-age believers prior to the beginning of this time of unprecedented judgment, which is known as the Great Tribulation. The rapture, therefore, will occur before the tribulation and will include all church-age believers. Now, this is not a new doctrine. I have here a slide that we'll look at in a second. But this is not a new doctrine. There are those that you will run into, and I've alluded to this in the previous weeks, who will say that uh, this is something that was developed by uh, John Nelson Darby in the early 19th century, especially after he listened to some ecstatic prophecies by Margaret MacDonald. And this is something that is uh, frequently said. And until just the last 10 or 12 years, there was no clear documented evidence of the teaching of a pre-tribulation rapture earlier in history. Then as a result of further studies, you have to remember that less than 20-25% of the writings of the early church fathers have been translated from Greek and Latin. So much that was taught in the early church in the first six or seven centuries of Christianity is still untranslated and unavailable to most of us. Well, there was a Syrian... Uh, pastor by the name who wrote under the pseudonym of Ephraim. So he is referred to as Pseudo Ephraim. And in his writing, he wrote in his book uh, on the last times, the Antichrist and the end of the world, he wrote, Why therefore do we not reject every care of earthly actions and prepare ourselves for the meeting of the Lord Christ so that he may draw us from the confusion? which overwhelms all the world. For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. Now, this is a 5th century, I believe it's a 5th or 6th century 
writing. This goes back to the early period of the church, and he clearly talks about all the saints are gathered, that's the rapture, prior to the tribulation that is to come. Also, it's been uh, discovered that a Baptist preacher and one of the founders of Brown, what is now Brown University in Rhode Island, Morgan Edwards, wrote in a high school uh, paper, uh, a high school thesis that he wrote in, in the 1730s, it wasn't published until the 1780s, that he wrote that the church would be uh, raptured prior to the tribulation. So there have been numerous pastors and teachers, as indicated by these sources, that taught and held to a pre-tribulation doctrine long before you had the systematization of dispensational theology or the pre-trib rapture or John Nelson Darby or Hal Lindsey or uh, Tim LaHaye or any of the current writings. So this is grounded. Not we, we ground our doctrine not in historical tradition, but in the Word of God. And the reason I, just, I bring this up is so that we realize that what we are teaching is not, as some would say, some new invention of doctrine, but does have a foundation in history as well as in the Word of God. And, of course, what is in the Word of God is our primary source of uh, authority. Now, we've gone through this chart showing the various elements that lead up to an understanding of the pre-trib rapture. And one of the things that should impress you as you study this is how this doctrine is related to many other doctrines in the Scripture. And as these are studied and the implications of these uh, doctrines are brought out, we come to understand uh, various, uh, various teachings of Scripture. The foundation is in the brown section, a literal interpretation of Scripture, and by this we mean a consistent, literal interpretation of Scripture. It doesn't, uh, doesn't mean that we don't hold to figures of speech, the use of metaphors, similes, other things of that nature, various forms of, uh, of literary imagery that are used in all writings, but that these are interpreted within the framework of literal interpretation, plain, normal use of language. Uh, premillennialism, that Jesus Christ will return before the millennium in order to set up his kingdom. Futurism, that various passages of scripture, such as Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 4 through uh, the end of the book, are future and have not yet been fulfilled. And then the distinction between Israel and the church. This is the foundation. Once you're thinking consistently within this framework, an understanding of a pre-tribulation rapture will naturally fall out. And as I pointed out in previous lessons, unfortunately, through much of church history from about the middle of the 3rd century A.D. up through the end of the uh, 16th century, late 1500s and into the early 1600s, you didn't have a consistent literal interpretation. You didn't have a premillennial theology. These prophecies were not necessarily understood futuristically, and the church was viewed as the replacement to Israel. So you didn't even have a framework within which anybody would think about uh, the timing of the rapture. Last time, I, as we go through this, just a couple of things. We pointed out Daniel's 70th week. And we saw that in the prophecy of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, that there's a clear chronological uh, prophecy for Israel, that there would be a period of 490 years prophesied for Israel, beginning with the uh, decree for the Jews to rebuild the walls and the fortifications of Jerusalem. This took place on March the 5th, 444 B.C., and there would be seven weeks plus 62 weeks or 69 weeks between that decree and the, time, and the entry of Messiah into Jerusalem. That comes out to 173,880 days. You get that by multiplying 69 times 7. comes out to 483 years times 360 days. There are 360 days in a prophetic year comes out to 173,880 days. That was the exact number of days between March the 5th, 444 B.C. and March the 30th in A.D. 33. We then asked what happened to the other seven years. Remember, there's still seven years left over for my people uh, Israel. 
and that was postponed. And in between the first advent of the Messiah and his uh, second advent, we have the church age. And then just prior to the second advent, we have the coming prince, that is the Antichrist, and the seven-year period of the tribulation. These are for Israel, not the church. So when we keep the distinction between Israel and the church, we realize God has different plans and purposes for the two. We saw there's a contrast between the comings of Christ. For example, Christ comes in the air for the church and returns to heaven. At the rapture, at the second coming, he comes to the earth with his bride to remain, to rule, and to reign on the planet. Then we saw that there's a necessary interval between the comings, and this was necessary because of what is revealed in Revelation. There's the worship of the 24 elders in Revelation 4 and 5. There's the Bema Seat judgment or the judgment seat of Christ that takes place in the heavens and then the marriage of the Lamb. All of this takes some time uh, between the two uh, events, the rapture and the second coming. Then we had the doctrine of imminency. Get ready, guys. The doctrine of imminency. This is the fact that Jesus Christ could come at any moment. Now, this week I got a uh, little film that I thought I would play for you this morning to illustrate the doctrine of imminency. But we didn't get the sound. Well, you'll get the visual impact. He's, this guy is preaching on the rapture that it could happen at any moment, at any time. <laughs> and then it happened. And that's what it's going to be like. It's going to be so fast. And, of course, we're the ones who are going to be raptured. And people are just going to be left behind wondering what happened. So uh, Bob sent that around the other day. And the, only tr- the only trouble with it was that he quoted a wrong verse. He quoted Matthew 24, uh, where it talks about the coming of the Son of Man will like, be like the lightning flashing from the uh, east to the west. But that's a second coming passage. But he illustrated the rapture. There are those who apply that to the rapture. It'll happen any moment. Nobody will know when it's going to happen. It is, it is imminent. It, there's no prophecy that must be fulfilled between this moment and the, sec, and the rapture of the church. Nothing. It can happen at any moment. The signs of the times that people talk about come are, are related to the second coming. Now let me give you a, an illustration of what this is like. Now this may not communicate a lot to most of you because I know that most of you have spent a lot of most of your life living down here in the temperate swamp climate of Houston. But for those of you who may have lived up in the northern climate at one time or another where you have frequent snowfalls, maybe this will communicate to you. We know that there are certain definite signs of the coming of Christmas. And those signs of the coming of Christmas seem to come earlier and earlier every year. You begin to see the uh, displays uh, at at the department stores. You see the ads in the uh, newspaper. And then now, even before uh, Halloween, you begin to see Christmas lights go up and you see Christmas tree lights and you begin to see the signs related to the coming of Christmas. But let me tell you, when you live in a northern climate in Minneapolis or Chicago or uh, Cleveland and you see the signs of Christmas, what do you know is about to happen? Snow. Winter is imminent. You don't know when that first snowfall is going to come. It could come at any moment. But when you see the signs related to Christmas, you know that the snow is around the corner. And that's what we see, I believe, today, is we see so many things coming together that are the signs for what will take place during the tribulation period. 
They are not signs of the rapture, but we see the stage being set. We see more and more things coming together that are going to be necessary during that period of the the tribulation and the judgment on the earth that we know that the rapture seems to be much closer than at other times in history. So it seems to be not only an imminent coming, but also a soon coming. And as we look out on the horizon of world events today and we see the very real threat, I think the threat of nuclear war, nuclear holocaust today is greater than it was at any time during the Cold War, probably even during the Cuban crisis, for those of you who are old enough to remember that, back during the Kennedy administration, that um, I remember here in Houston, that was uh, quite a reality, and we had the bomb scares, and we had the, the what, civil defense drills where we had to crawl under our desk at school as if that would protect us from a nuclear attack. I kept looking at my desk thinking, hmm, I'm not sure that's strong enough to withstand any bomb. But um, with Akhmanada job in Iran, with Kim Il-sung in North Korea, it just seems like uh, these guys are crazy. And uh, Akhmanada job again just in the last couple of days announced that it would be better to lose half of Iran than to see Israel continue to exist. So it is an outworking of of, uh, much that is in prophecy because with him, the focal point is Israel. Of course, we know that this is where things eventually will head during the tribulation period when the whole world turns against Israel and Israel becomes the focal point of the the, uh, uh, hostilities of the nations during the tribulation period. So we have to be... Be ready. The rapture can occur at any moment. So we eagerly wait for Jesus, Hebrews 9.28, as I pointed out last time, which means in the Greek the idea that we are looking forward to him with head bent forward in anticipation, waking up each day thinking, could this be the day? Is our, is our Lord coming back today? There's an excitement and enthusiasm that even if he doesn't come back for a 100 years, there is a consciousness of his coming that impacts the way we live each day. And then we come to the nature of the tribulation. We'll finish up this morning with our last two or three uh, elements related to the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture. The nature of the tribulation. It is for Israel. It is for Israel. It is not for the church. And we see this from a number of passages. For example, we see that it is a time of preparation for Israel's final restoration and conversion. In fact, as we'll see in a study I'm preparing that uh, we'll get into probably in early October, there are two worldwide regatherings predicted for the nation Israel in the Bible. Two worldwide regatherings. The one that most of you are familiar with and the one that we're going to focus on this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 4 is a regathering uh, of the nation in regeneracy, a regathering of the nation where they are looking to God and they are regathered as a regenerate people. So turn with me in Deuteronomy chapter 4 to look at this uh, remarkable prophecy that Moses gives the people just prior to their entry into the land. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, after 40 years of divine discipline, which has seen the uh, sin unto death of the uh, Exodus generation. As the conquest generation stands in the plains of Moab in anticipation of entry into the land, Moses gives them his final uh, message, his final sermon, in which is the book of Deuteronomy. And look down to about verse 25. Verse 25. Moses says, when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land. So he's looking forward to a future generation when years have gone by, generations have gone by. And act corruptly. So he anticipates the fact that eventually they will reject God and they will go into idolatry. You will act corruptly, make a carved image in the form of anything, and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven 
and earth to witness. This is standard uh, vocabulary, witness vocabulary in the book of Deuteronomy. Several times he calls upon heaven and earth to witness. Heaven represents the angels. Earth represents mankind. These stand as the two witnesses to this covenant that is being restated in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land. What he is telling them is you will go into the land, generations will go by, you will do evil in the sight of the Lord, you're going to succumb to idolatry, and you're going to reject the Lord your God, and as a result of that, you will soon perish from the land. God will remove you from this land that he has promised to give you, this land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. He goes on to say, You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. This took place for the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, the, the kingdom was united under the first, first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. At Solomon's death, there was a civil war, tax revolt. And the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes under the leadership of Jeroboam revolted against the heavy taxation of Solomon's son Rehoboam and so the nation split ten tribes in the north two tribes in the south the northern tribes went apostate faster they were actually never very spiritual not one king in the north ever followed Yahweh every one of them did evil in the sight of the Lord they immediately uh, under Jeroboam went into idolatry remember he decided to set up an alternate temple in Samaria and he set up a an idol of a bull and said this is the God who brought you up out of out of Egypt he was one of the original historical revisionists and uh, this is the idol that brought you up out of Egypt not God so uh, from Jeroboam on the northern kingdom was in idolatry and so in 722 BC the Assyrian empire was brought over by God to wipe out the northern kingdom and they were taken into uh, divine discipline at that stage the fifth uh, cycle of discipline described in Leviticus 26 where the people were scattered among the nations it's this is what uh, Moses refers to here to the southern kingdom the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south uh, their judgment came in 586 BC with the Babylonians when Nebuchadnezzar came in and defeated them, conquered Jerusalem, and destroyed the first temple, Solomon's temple. So this took place at that time. They were scattered, notice, among the peoples, literally among the nations, not just to Babylon, but they were scattered throughout the ancient world. The technical word that is used to describe this is the Jewish diaspora. Uh, our English word is dispersion. The diaspora began in 722 and then 586, and even though you had a partial return of Jews to the land in 535, they came from one place, and that was Babylon. They did not come from all the nations of the earth, which was what was predicted that God would, in, in, regener in the regenerate regathering, they would come from all of the world, and that um, uh, this was only a partial return, so it doesn't fit the prophecies of certain returns. They were brought back partially, just a few, to establish a nation for the Messiah uh, to come to. So in verse 27 we read, The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number. And today there are fewer than uh, about 12 million Jews in the whole world. I think the number is around 12 or 13 million Jews in all the world. Now think about that. That's not very many, especially when you think about the fact that after the, uh, re, the Jewish revolt of, uh, 60, uh, of AD 67 and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and all the Jews that were killed at that time and then scattered, and that was just in Jerusalem. There were about maybe uh, four or five million Jews living in the land at that time. Then there was another revolt in 117 under Trajan, another one, the Bar Kokhba revolt in 135, and then the Bar Kokhba revolt, 580,000 Jews were killed. So you think about how many Jews there were in the world in past times, you realize that what we have today is a number that is few in number, especially living in the land of Israel. So the Lord will leave you few in number, and, and there, there in the nations... Verse 28, there you will serve 
gods, that is false gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, from there, that is while you are out there scattered among all the nations, uh, for us that would be from the United States all the way to China, scattered throughout all the nations, and there are Jewish remnants in, in many different uh, nations in India, in China, in um, various Muslim lands, Afghanistan, uh, Russia, uh, Persia, uh, Turkey. Many places have uh, remnants of Jews living there. And the promise is from there you will what? Seek the Lord. Has that happened yet? See, that has not happened. That didn't happen in 536. That didn't happen at any other time in history. That has yet to be fulfilled. From there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. This is talking about that second worldwide regathering, which is a regathering of regenerate Israel. And then it describes the status of the world at that time. Verse 30, When you are in distress... And all these things come upon you when? In the latter days. This is the latter days of Israel's history, Daniel's 70th week. When you're in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which He swore to them. And then it goes on to describe how God would bring them back to the land. So this takes place as a time of preparation for Israel's restoration and conversion. Now I want to look at the second reference I have there, Jeremiah chapter 30. So turn with me to the second half of the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah. That's where you have your three large prophets. That's why they're called major prophets, not because they're more important but than the other prophets, but because they're larger uh, larger books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel. So we'll go to Jeremiah chapter uh, chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 3. The focus of this chapter is on the restoration of Israel to the land. Again. He says, For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, We've heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. Ask now and see whether man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turn pale. See, this is a poetic or metaphorical, not metaphorical, but a poetic description of the anguish that they're going through, the suffering, the adversity, as they're going through this time of of, uh, what we know as the tribulation. And then in verse 7, we read, Alas, for that day, that is that period of time, is great so that None is like it. Now remember that phrase, because the point that I'm going to make is later on is that the tribulation period is a time of unprecedented destruction, of unprecedented killing, of unprecedented judgment. And here we read in verse 7 that there is none like it. No other period of time in history is like this. And it is the time... Jeremiah says in the second half of verse 7, It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now I want you to notice something. Notice in verse 3, we have the promise that God is going to bring back His people, Israel and Judah, from captivity. Then we have a discussion of what happens in the tribulation. And then it goes on to talk about their their, uh, deliverance and that they will be regenerate later on. So this indicates that prior to the tribulation, there will be this worldwide regathering of the nation, but not in belief. See, there are two regatherings, one in belief and one in unbelief. The first worldwide regathering in unbelief 
I believe is taking place right now. It's been going on for about a hundred years, and who knows how much longer it will go on. But this is the first time, starting in the 1850s, you can look at the uh, population records, and you see that there is just this this mushrooming population of Jews in the land beginning in the middle to late 19th century. And this is the first time that you've had this kind of a regathering in all of the church age. It is unique, and they're regathering in unbelief, and there must be a regathering of unbelief just to have a nation in the land to be able to enter into that uh, covenant of peace with the Antichrist, which is prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. Other things of that nature doesn't mean that they're, uh, they're ready to believe yet, but it sets the stage for the tribulation period. Okay, the, the nature of the tribulation is Jewish. It's a time of preparation. It's a time of judgment on the nation and to prepare them for ultimate restoration and conversion. The last passage there is in Zechariah. So keep turning towards the New Testament. Zechariah is located in about the middle of the Minor Prophets. It's a second to last book. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. There we read, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Notice, there are inhabitants in Jerusalem. These are Jews. At the end of the tribulation period, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Who's that talking about? the Lord Jesus Christ, who they crucified on the cross. They will look on me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Ramon on the plain of Megiddo. In other words, this is talking about the time of Israel's final conversion, acceptance of Jesus as their Messiah. So this is part of the purposes of the tribulation period. It doesn't relate to the church. It relates to Israel. Second indication that this is related to Israel is the terminology that's used, which we just read in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. The focal point here is on judgment on Israel to bring them to that point of recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah and calling Upon him, uh, the third indication that this is a, a, a Jewish nature in the tribulation, Jewish focus, is that though the church currently experiences tribulations in John sixteen thirty three, Jesus said that in, that we would face adversity, we would face tribulations plural. We won't go through the tribulation. In fact, in more technical terms for the tribulation would be to refer to it as Daniel's 70th week or the time of Jacob's trouble. It's only referred to as the Great Tribulation once, and that term Great Tribulation really describes the intense judgments of the last half of the tribulation. So if we were being technically correct, we would not refer to the entire seven-year period as, uh, as the tribulation, but that's come to be the accepted uh, nomenclature. Just like Antichrist, we always refer to the the first beast, the world leader, the Daniel's little horn, as the Antichrist. But that term Antichrist is used only one time in the New Testament, and that's in First John uh, chapter three. So uh, the term, or First John chapter two rather, the term Antichrist is actually only used one time, and yet we have taken that to refer uh, to him. So we have to accept the fact that that uh, within our normal conversation we've picked up certain terms and they've they've become the accepted uh, nomenclature for these things and the fourth uh, fourth principle related to the Jewish nature of the tribulation is that the church is mentioned or the word church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation as we've been studying in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Nineteen times we have the word church mentioned, but in chapters 4 through 19, which describes the entire period of the tribulation, 
the church is never mentioned. The church is never mentioned. Israel is mentioned. The Jews are mentioned. But the church is never mentioned. Why? Because the church is not present on the earth during that period of time. So the nature of the tribulation is that which relates to the Jews. Also, the judgments of the tribulation are unique in all of history. They are unique. There's nothing like it. All of these judgments, they, they, are, they, they take the, uh, the ten plagues of Egypt and they apply that to the entire world. So if you go back and you read in Exodus about those ten plagues that came upon just that one nation, that is just a foreshadowing of how God is going to judge the entire earth. In the first uh, series of judgments known as the seal judgments, a quarter of the earth's population dies. In the second series of judgments, uh, known as the trumpet judgments, a third of what's left is gone. By that time, half of the earth's population is killed. So within a period of about five years, if, we're, if it were to happen today, the earth's population would be diminished from about 7 billion to 3.5 billion. Just think about that, 3.5 billion people being killed within the next five years. In order for that to happen, there are going to be cataclysmic events happening every week that make uh, 9-11 pale in comparison. Hurricane Katrina uh, type of events are going to happen on a regular basis. The news media is not even going to be able to keep up. Matthew 24:21 says, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. This can't be applied to anything that's ever happened before in history. It can't be applied to the persecutions of uh, Nero against the church. It can't be applied to the persecutions of Diocletian against the church. It can't be applied to any historical event. It is something that is unique. Daniel 12.1 states, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And notice it is related to your people, the Jewish focus of the tribulation period. It is a unique time, and at the end of which your people shall be delivered, Daniel is told. Everyone is found written in the book. So we look at the nature of the tribulation, realize it is Jewish in its focus. Another reason the rapture must occur before the tribulation and there must be a removal of the church is because of the nature of the church. As we look at what Scripture says about the church, first of all, we realize that the purpose for the church differs from God's purpose for Israel. God has a distinct purpose for calling out people during the church age, and we are going to we are uh, enter into the body of Christ, and we are going to rule and reign with Christ. We are a heavenly people, not an earthly people, with a heavenly destiny, not an earthly destiny. Secondly, the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. It was not revealed in the Old Testament. And it's a mystery where the Jews and Gentiles are united together in the body of Christ. There is no distinction during the church age between Jew and Gentile. So when an ethnic Jew trusts Christ as Savior, he enters into the body of Christ. When a Gentile, such as yourself, trusts in Christ as Savior, then you enter into the body of Christ. So there are Jews, Gentiles, and church-age believers. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a church-age believer. And that is a distinction. So God's plan for us is different from that of the Jews. Third, the church is not appointed to wrath, i.e. the tribulation. The term wrath is a word that is used in numerous contexts as a technical word for the intense judgments of the tribulation period. The term wrath ultimately refers to the the outworking of the justice of God, the judgments of God in history. But specifically in these passages, it reveals the judgment of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9 specifically. We'll look at those in a minute. And then in our passage, the church is promised deliverance 
from the hour of testing. We don't have to go through it. That doesn't mean that we're, we have an escapist mentality. It just means that we recognize that God has a distinct plan and purpose for the church. The church is never mentioned as the object of the wrath of God in Scripture. We have uh, wrath first used in Revelation chapter 6. From the very beginning of this seven-year period, we have the outpouring of the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, Wrath is worldwide in scope in the book of Revelation. It's not just on a few select people in a few areas. It is worldwide. Wrath involves supernatural judgments and signs and wonders on the earth that affect everyone that is an earth dweller. And wrath results in the deaths of billions during the church age, but the church, I mean, during the tribulation period, but the church is never the object of God's wrath. We are the bride of Christ. Christ doesn't beat us up before he marries us. That would set a uh, bad precedent and image. First Thessalonians 5 9 states, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, that's 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 describes the rapture. So this is the same context that the rapture occurs because God has not destined us for wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 says that we are to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of to come, that is, he delivers us from the uh, rapture. I mean, delivers us from the tribulation. Then, finally, we have the work of God the Holy Spirit in the tribulation, or that's not in the tribulation period. We have a a very important verse in 2 Thessalonians 2.6 that talks about this person known as the restrainer. And there we learn that the restrainer is a term for God the Holy Spirit. It refers to the indwelling ministry of God the Holy Spirit at work through the body of Christ during the current church age. That as part of his ministry during this time period, God the Holy Spirit is restraining evil through the presence of the church so that you have a restraint on the evil of Hitler, the restraint on the evil of Islam, restraint on just evil in general and Satan's plans. But that is because of the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. The verse reads, And you know what restrains him, him being the Antichrist, you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We see that all around us. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, if you notice, I've underlined both of these words, restrains, in the first part in verse 6 and again in verse 7. In verse 6, you have a neuter, uh, it's used as a neuter participle. He who restrains. This refers to the Holy Spirit. The term spirit, pneuma, is a neuter noun. But when you get down to this verse 7, he who now restrains uses the same word, masculine participle. And this often happens in reference to the Holy Spirit where you'll have sometimes a masculine pronoun referring to the neuter noun of pneuma, the spirit, because the spirit is not... Uh, uh, neuter it's not he's not just a force he is a person this is one of the reasons that uh, theologians argue for the personhood of God the Holy Spirit well anyway what 2nd Thessalonians 2 6 and 7 tells us is that the lawless one the antichrist cannot be revealed until the restrainer that is God the Holy Spirit is taken away so that as long as the church is present on the earth the tribulation cannot begin. So the, as long as we're here, there is a restraint that prevents the, even the appearance or the uh, recognition of the Antichrist. So we put all of these things together and we come to the conclusion that the church must be taken out of the earth, all church-age believers removed, before the tribulation can begin. 
Now, many people say, well, why is this so important? Well, it's important because it is designed in Scripture as practical motivation for godly living, for spiritual life, for evangelism, and for missions. And I've pointed this out before, that much of the missionary activity to Jews since the middle 19th century has been spearheaded by dispensational groups or by Jewish missionary organizations that were dispensational and in their orientation and understood the distinction between Israel and church and they were trying to get the gospel to as many Jews as possible because even though they may not believe today if they know the gospel they may be one of those 144,000 that will study in Revelation uh, chapter 7 that are Revelation chapter 6 that relate to the um, relate to evangelism among the Jews during the tribulation period 1 John 2.28 says and now little children abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming see this is our motivation he can come at any moment are you ready are we prepared Have we made doctrine the priority in our life so that when he comes, we're ready for the judgment seat of Christ? 1 John 3.23, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared, it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope, that's every believer who has this confident expectation who is anticipating, eagerly awaiting the coming of Christ, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. It is a crucial element in our sanctification. We recognize Jesus could come today, and each day it impacts our thought, our behavior, our priorities, and our decisions because we want to be ready for his return with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for what you have revealed to us in Scripture, for recognizing that Jesus Christ could come at any moment, that he could come this afternoon, he could come tonight, he could come tomorrow. He may not come for another hundred years, but we are to be ready at every moment. We are to eagerly await. We are to anticipate his coming, and that that should challenge us to live more consistently for him, and to put doctrine first in our life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty so that all you have to do is trust in him. You don't have to bargain with God. You don't have to uh, get involved in Uh, religious activities. You don't have to uh, partake of certain religious uh, events. You simply have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And at that instant, you are justified, regenerate, and you have eternal life. This is your opportunity to make your eternal destiny sure and certain. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.